I'm going to read uh, an extended reading, and I want you just to listen. Don't look at the text. It's in your bulletin and also in your Bible, of course. And, uh, but what I'm asking you to do is just listen. And uh, this will take a little bit of time today. I'm going to be reading uh, uh, chapter 15 and 16 of the book of Revelation. So listen. See what you hear and what images come into your mind. And see if you can pick up the rhythm of the book and how it's being uh, portrayed. So now hear God's word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O God, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come to you. And worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with gold sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his blood into the rivers and the springs of water. And they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for the pain and the sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. 
And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not be, go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a very difficult uh, portion of Scripture, and, uh, and I violated every rule. Uh, uh, ben can tell you that in homiletics we're told never to read a passage that long took about five minutes, but uh, I think you need to see the context of what we are looking at. A conflagration of epic proportions, in fact it is a world-ending conflagration that he has just described. And yet, if you uh, insist on it being utterly literal, there are numerous problems, and one is that this would be Uh, the third or fourth time that Jesus comes back to the earth and uh, there's an utter conflagration. There are several other conflagrations that occurred before this. And so we have taken an approach of recapitulation that the book of Revelation is describing the same end of the world, the same battle of Armageddon, the same destruction of the cosmos several times from different camera angles. Listen to... Uh, What uh, Dennis Johnson says in his commentary, this is very enlightening, pay attention, this will clear up so many things and help you understand this very puzzling and can be a bizarre book. Listen, the outpouring of the bowls will reveal the end of history, the termination of the first heaven and earth, which we will see in chapter 21 from seven different perspectives. So each bowl is showing the end of the world from a different perspective. The bowl cycle in Revelation 16, therefore, brings us into a deeper and more detailed uh, portrait of the cosmic conflagration that we glimpsed, listen, in the sixth seal, which was back in chapter 6, and the seventh trumpet, which was in chapter 11. Further perspectives on this completion of God's wrath 
at the climax of history will come into view in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 20. The order of John's vision, listen, the order of John's vision is not necessarily the chronological order in which the events occur in history. Because they are symbolic, they may be occurring in different order, but he is seeing them in a certain order, and therefore we're reading them in a certain order, and we also are having uh, these images coming into our mind of what is going on. So what do we see? Our outline that we've used throughout this series, what do we see? Why do we see it? And who do we see? The book of Revelation, I'll be the first one. I've been studying it for years now, and especially this last year in preparation. I can tell you it is magnificent, and it is bizarre, and it can be a little difficult to to untangle. But look, folks, you either have to read the book of Revelation literally and chronologically with all of the problems, and I think they are too many to overcome, Or you can read it the way John is presenting it, which is symbolically. And it takes nothing away from the literalness of what will occur. There is an end to this earth, and it is coming. We don't know when, we don't know how. But we do know it's going to come at the end of days in a conflagration that the world has never seen before. It will be unrecognizable at the moment, but immediately afterwards we will know that it happened. If you lived in Berlin in 1945, you would have thought that the conflagration had come. If you lived in Sudan during the purges, you would have seen. If you lived in Rwanda, you would have thought the end had come. If you lived in Aleppo, Syria, you would have thought the end had come. But what he's describing is a worldwide conflagration. So what do we see? I want to talk to you and I want to speak from my heart about the whole issue of judgment. Judgment is an unpleasant thing to think about. We all believe that other people deserve judgment, but we don't. We think uh, when we see images on television, uh, or just this morning, I, I got a, a thing popped up on my phone And I was deep in prayer. (laughs) Actually, I was waiting for a mighty bee. And I'm looking at my phone and this thing comes up from our neighborhood has an app, you know, and this thing pops up on our neighborhood app that somebody just around the corner from us tried to break into someone's house and they caught him on one of those cameras, right? And they're saying, everybody watch out, watch out for these kids who are trying to break into people's homes. And so I thought, you know, and, and you know, the wrath and the anger just rose up in me. Doesn't that happen to you? Those little brats trying to get in somebody's house. Never mind that we did the same thing when we were young. But we think everybody else deserves wrath. So what do we think about judgment? Let me give you four things very quickly about what we see. First is, we see that in this book, judgment is concluded, it comes to an end. In the very first verse and in the very last section in 16, seven plagues which are the last and with them the wrath of God is finished. And then in 16, 17, he says, it is done. And so the wrath of God is bracketed by a climax. It's finished, it's done, it's concluded. He is going to make an end of this world someday. I don't know when, no. 
pardon me, neither do you. And we don't need to speculate. In fact, we'll talk about that in a minute, why speculation is not helpful. We see seven plagues. There's one on the earth, one in the sea, one in the rivers and springs, one on the sky. These are, these are, are metaphorical, but they are also literal. I, I don't know how to explain it other than that. They really are going to happen, but whatever it's describing, it's going to be much worse than what he's saying. It's going to be a conflagration that we cannot even begin to imagine. And the reason that John parallels these with the trumpets, and by the way, they're directly parallel to the trumpets, and the reason that he's invoking plagues on earth, sea, rivers, sky, on the throne, listen, on the throne of the beast, and on the river Euphrates, which was a symbolic boundary line between the enemy kings of the east and the kings of Israel in the west. And then in the air, the air represents the entire cosmos. The reason that he's invoking these plagues and the way he lays them out and the way he's, he's ordering them and describing them, he's bringing into our minds something that he wants us to see. He wants us to see that God is finishing judgment that has been started long, long time ago. And we have seen over and over again world powers and world empires and nations and people who opposed God be destroyed. And the first people upon whom God's judgment came and were exiled from their kingdom was who? Class, yes, Adam and Eve. And from that time, God has made a separation. He says, you know, Adam and Eve, I'm putting you out of paradise, but from you is going to come another conqueror, another king who will conquer all my enemies, the dragon. The serpent, Nahash, the evil one, will crush his head beneath your feet, his feet. And there are going to be people out there in the world that are going to repent and believe this good news about this great king. And there's going to be other people that are going to curse him all their days. And I will judge those people. And I will bring judgment on them. So judgment concludes, and there is a conclusion. History is running to a point. It's not constantly recycling. We don't know when it is. I don't think, personally, I don't think it's going to be any time soon. I think that on purpose, God did not want us to take our historical uh, uh, stick pens and stick them into a timeline on a map and say, oh, this is here, and oh, this is here, and oh, this is here, and we're all moving forward to this end of time. Because that's very arrogant for us to think that. People have thought that in the past, and just to find out the world keeps going. And Jesus said, no one knows, even I don't know. Don't speculate. It's not helpful. So judgment does have a termination point. Secondly, judgment is necessary. 
Now, I know our Western sensibilities rebel at this. We think, oh, God should be kind. He should be loving. He should be nice. He should be wonderful. He should treat everybody the same. And that's just because we've never had anything horrible happen to us. We've never seen our children dragged out of our house right in front of our eyes or, or limbs whacked off. Or I could say other things, but we have children. I can't, here in the, in the, in the uh, congregation, I can't say what I would like to say, but we've never had those. And if you have had those things happen to you, and not just somebody that uh, you know, bumped into your bumper in your car and didn't apologize, think about it. In his book, uh, Exclusion and Embrace, I'm sure some of you have heard this before, Miroslav Volf, in talking about the horrific genocide in Croatia and Bosnia and other places in the world, and you all know we are seeing some horrific things in Nigeria right now and other places where Christians are being slaughtered and maimed and mutilated simply because they are Christians. But we're so insulated here in the West. But listen to what... Miroslav Volf said in this book, Exclusion and Embrace, one could object, listen, I'm asking you to stretch and think with me now. One could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not love, long-suffering, all-powerful? A counter-question could go something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity? One could further argue that in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Think about what he's saying. If your family is dragged out of your home and your children are murdered in front of you for gratuitous reasons, for no reason, You would spend your whole life wanting to bring wrath on those people. If they just broke into your house and stole your stuff. How much more if they enslaved you for generations and generations simply because of the color of your skin. Imagine the injustices that God has witnessed on this planet and make no mistake, in our lifetime, in some of our lifetimes, we've seen it. World War II was not that long ago, and we saw millions slaughtered. Not just Jews, six million Jews, probably more, but 20 million Russians killed by Stalin and his own people, and the Chinese purge in communist, uh, Mao Zedong's communist regime. And elsewhere, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, the killing fields. We could go on and on and on about the slaughter. And let me tell you, if you just look back at history, what do you see God do to each one of those evil empires? What does He do? He brings judgment and He brings wrath. He lets them go for a while, but then they come tumbling down. And it will be that way till the end of days. And at the end of days, He will bring every single nation down to its knees according to these texts here 
So redemption is necessary. Love means nothing. If you love somebody, and I know everyone in this room has somebody, your children or your spouse or someone that you deeply love. And if someone touches that person, someone hurts and harms that person, there will be no grounds for you restraining vengeance. God said, I looked it up this morning, there's four or five places in the Old Testament where he says, do not bring vengeance is mine. I will repay. Refrain from vengeance. What is the basis for you refraining from from vengeance? The only the only thing that gave Jesus any right to say, bless those that curse you, pray for them who despitefully use you, is knowing Jesus knew that one day this would come. And he's telling you and he's telling me, he's telling all Christians, restrain from avenging yourself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. He's simply saying to us, trust me. Trust me. I will not make a mistake. I will not let you go unavenged. If you remember back at the beginning here in this text, remember the altar's crying out, go get them, go get them. Remember in the early chapters, the altar is speaking and is saying, when are you going to avenge us? The souls are underneath the altar. They're crying out, when are you going to avenge us? This is when he does it. It's necessary. There is no love. You cannot love something that you are not jealous to protect. And that you were protect. Some of you would, if, if someone pulled a gun and pointed it at one of your children, most of you would jump in front of the gun and take the, take the bullet for your children. Do you not see it? God stepped in front of the bullet. He took The wrath of God in His own bosom, Jesus, absorbed it for those who would trust Him. And by virtue of that, the voice comes out of the temple and says, Go, pour my wrath out upon the earth. Judgment is necessary or love means nothing. And you know it, so do I. We would make mistakes when we would execute judgment, like Frank Castle. See how spiritual this church is? Nobody knows who Frank Castle is. One, two, three. You guys are really super spiritual. (laughs) Don't, Don't watch The Punisher because it is pretty rough. But I mean, that's why we like it, or at least that's why I like it, Because he goes out and brings the wrath of God on all his enemies. And we, there's something in us that likes that. But we would do it wrong. We would make mistakes. We'd go too far. God will not go too far. He will not, he's not going to rain down his wrath indiscriminately on every man, woman, and child willy-nilly. He's going to rain down his wrath on those that have the mark of the beast and he knows who they are. Make no mistake. Nothing will be done. There will be no injustice with him where there would be injustice with us. Redemption is also celebrated. And why? Because, I mean judgment, because redemption accompanies judgment. 
here in this text, in 15, 3 through 4, he combines the song of redemption that Moses sang with the song of the Lamb. It's really remarkable. He combines the song of Moses and the Lamb. See, it's easy for us to focus merely on the graphic and disturbing images. And I'm not telling you not to. They are graphic. They are disturbing. And they should bother you immensely. You should have lots of questions. The room should be filled. After church today for the Q&A, you should want to know why. It should trouble you. If you think, oh, the wrath of God doesn't bother me, I deserve it. Then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand that you have been rescued from that wrath. You don't understand that you also were under judgment. You don't understand that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you. You don't get it. You still think you're saved by merit, by your works. But when you come to that point in your life, when you come to that place in your life where you know that this is your description, that you should have this wrath, that it should come on you, that you've already done enough evil in your life that the wrath of God should come on you. I do. And I'm way more holy than most of you. <laughs> well, by now you know I'm, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I, I mean, really, think about it. There's no, I have nothing to commit. I don't know what you have in your pocket. Maybe you've got something really stellar that you can roll out and hand to God and say, look at this, look how great this is, and God's going to go, wow, that is really, I hadn't seen that before. <laughs> Let me tell you, our Father in Heaven saw the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most transcendent act of courage and love and brokenness In His Son, Jesus Christ, there's nothing that you could ever bring before Him to compare with that. And why would you want to? Why wouldn't you want to run with that? Run run to God and say, don't look at me, Father. Look at Him. And that's what He's saying here. The song of Moses, the song of the Lamb is right in the middle. He's saying, sing this song of redemption. Judgment means redemption for you. Judgment for the world, yes. And the allusion is to Exodus. This is what he's doing. He's he's wanting everybody's mind to run to that story that was told, not just in the Jewish community. This was a, a transnational story of the Exodus. People knew this story. It was part of the legend, part of the warp and woof of the entire ancient world. The story of Israel and the Exodus from Egypt. One commentator said this, this is beautiful, listen. The sea is reminiscent not only of the crossing of the Red Sea, but also God's power to subdue the chaos of the sea. Remember I told you the sea was the place where the demons lived, where the devil lived, where the serpents lived. It was the chaotic and it was a metaphor for all that was wrong with the world. And God comes and He says, now the sea is, is, a, is a pavement of pure, clear glass mingled with fire and standing. Listen, the Israelites stood on the far side of the shore and observed the death of their enemies. You know, Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. In the last days, listen to this, it's got to Thrill your heart, folks. In the last days, victorious saints like us who persevere, trusting our Savior through thick and thin, 
through the disappointments, the pain, the sin, the heartache, through all of the perils of this life, the vagaries of this life, victorious saints likewise will stand on the far side of their troubles and the persecutions of their beast and look across that crystal sea and see the judgment of our enemy. Finally, death, hell, and the grave destroyed. Don't you all long for that? Don't you look for that? When you're suffering in your body or your checkbook doesn't balance or relationships are coming unglued or or you're deploying to a far land and you're going to be in harm's way, you're going to be separated from your family or or your career is not going in the way you want or things are not... or It could be any number of things or God forbid they kick your door down and take you out and kill your children in front of your eyes. I mean, what you know... God forbid that He's telling you. He's telling this audience, these people who were suffering under Domitian and were having those very things happening, look at the song of Moses. Look at the song of the Lamb. Look at the picture I've painted for you of a second exodus from slavery. A second deliverance. An ultimate and complete deliverance so that you're no longer enslaved. And so judgment is also the fourth thing, righteous. God has a right to judge. In, in verses 5 and 6 of chapter uh, of 15, he says, Just are you, O Holy One, who was and is. You brought these judgments, for they shed the blood of the saints. In chapter 16, sorry. And you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. God's not going to give anybody what they don't deserve. You all understand that, right? We would, we would overdo wrath. We do it all the time. One of the reasons why the Old Testament had the lex talionis written into it, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was not to exact more vengeance, but to limit the amount of vengeance that was exacted. Because in that day, if you broke somebody's tooth, they would come and kill you and all your family. If you stole somebody's ox, they would come and kill you and all your family and take all your oxen and burn your village to the ground. And so God tells them, look, limit your vengeance to simply, merely an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It was unheard of in those days. And they assembled at a place called Armageddon. God remembered. He's just. He's going to remember Babylon, folks. He's going to bring His judgment against the wicked of this world. No innocent person will die. You know how they they have those things at the end of movies? No animal was hurt in the making of this film. Look, no innocent people are going to die. People are going to get exactly what they deserve. Exactly. Not more, not less, but exactly what they deserve. Why are we seeing it? Well, let me give this to you quickly and then we'll finish. Look, this whole section, repentance, faith, and worship are front and center. He's he's begging the world to repent. If you look at, at the song of Moses, great and amazing are your deeds, just in Trinity. But people do not repent. 
There's warnings and warnings three times in this chapter. They refuse to repent and they curse God. You're not talking about people that are, are, are wanting to know the truth. You, you don't hear any of these people, these hundred pound uh, uh, hailstones are coming down on them and you would think if hundred pound hailstones are falling on the earth and crushing you, what would you say? God have mercy, right? You would cry out for mercy. Any normal person would do that. We're talking about people that are looking at hundred pound hailstones coming down, shaking their fists and cursing God. And there are those people in this world. God makes no mistakes in His judgment. And He does warn us. Look at verse 15 of chapter 16. He gives this little parenthetical. In fact, in some of your Bibles, I think it may even be in this that we printed in here. It's actually in a parenthesis because it's meant to be a parenthetical warning. Right in the middle, He's telling you, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. In other words, you're not going to know when I come. It's going to be unexpected. Blessed is the one who stays awake. How many times did Jesus say that? Stay awake. Keep oil for your lamps, he told the ten virgins. Be sure that you're ready. Your king's going to go on a long journey. And then he's going to be gone for a long time. And people are going to start taking advantage of each other. Don't do that, he says, because I will come and I will exact payment. I will punish that wicked servant. I'll put him in the stocks. So he urges us to worship and then he warns us again. He warns us and begs us to repent and turn to him. Finally, who do you see? Very quickly, look. It's very interesting. I just, this just hit me. I didn't read it in a commentary. I'm sure it's in one of the commentaries I have, but I I just was fascinated by the fact that John unites the Exodus song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. He puts them together. The song of Moses and the Lamb are united. The plagues on Egypt, on Babylon, are united. The Exodus from sin, from slavery, from bondage are all put in unite. What he's, what he's saying is, is to the people of God, he's saying, look back at this long, long history. And you remember what I've done. I've always protected you. I've always been there. I have never failed you. And I will not fail you now. In the wilderness, the people sinned against God and Moses And God sent fiery serpents into the camp and they were biting people and people were dying and the people cried out for deliverance and Moses goes to God and he says, what are you doing? You've sent all these snakes into the camp. Everybody's dying. What do I do? And Moses tells him this. Take bronze and make a bronze serpent. And the hash. Make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And everybody that looks at it will be healed from the snake bite. And centuries later, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, Nash. 
the sin of the world. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that so that the world might be saved through him. If I, even I, am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. How are you going to be healed? How are you going to escape the fiery serpents of judgment? How? Behold the man upon the tree, the cross of Christ for you, for me. Will you trust him? That's what John's telling the people in his day and what he's telling us today. Let's pray. Father, Help us to look to Jesus, the one who was lifted up and made a curse for us. In his body, he bore our sins on the tree that sin would pass over us. The blood of the lamb shed for us. Combined with the song of redemption of Moses, we are free, free indeed. Help us, save us. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. And now we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith with the manna that came down from heaven. We pray this in his blessed name. Amen.